don't know how to follow them. I, I won't tell you what time I was supposed to get up here. And I won't tell you what time I'm going to get down because I don't know. And uh, at my age, I can get by with almost anything. And so I'll preach till I'm done. But, uh, you know, life's a funny thing. The Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And in each of our lives, you know, we put all of that together all of the time, don't we? Life's a serious business. Uh, I remember once doing a funeral of a friend one morning and the wedding of a friend the same evening. You have to learn to mourn and rejoice even in one day. And uh, Teresa and I went down to Austin Friday afternoon late, had a nice date night, a good time. Uh, Then I spoke twice to the singles leaders from all of Texas, Oklahoma, wherever else. Uh, Yesterday morning, a couple of times, drove back last night. So I'm a little weary in one sense. But uh, here are some names. Jerry Frederick. Will Cornley. Jim Fulcher. I just found out this morning that Jim died last night, I think. Uh, I brought Jim into the ministry years ago in San Diego. He actually, he and his family lived in our house for a few months before we moved to Boston. And all the guys on the list, and I have a much longer list of friends who died in the last year, but that's a list of people very close to me, uh, people that I have played golf with, people that I've spent the night in their homes or they in mine, and on and on. And it reminds me that every time I speak, it matters, because I'm going to run out of times. And one day, somebody will mention a list like that with mine. And I thought this morning when the Arcelanas read the list, and thought about Terry's husband, that when they started doing this seven years ago, Tom was still alive. Uh, but uh, life is serious, but God wants us to do both the mourning at the right time and the rejoicing at the right time. And so... Uh, Even though I feel a little heavy-hearted and tired, uh, I do have a gift that always kicks in. I never quite run out of words, Uh, but uh, I want to talk to you today about a subject that I've talked about many, many times, and Derek wanted me to talk about it. I I did this same lesson over in the Southwest back, I don't know, a couple of months back, and uh, Derek's been wanting me to work it in here, and so today is the day. He took off out of town, so... Uh, anyway, uh, an essential step to Christian maturity, and actually uh, what I might call not only the essential step, but often the missing ingredient. I'm going to talk to you today about what got me into this movement of churches. You see, I didn't start off as a minister in this group. I started off in more of what I call the mainline church. And that was my background. I was already getting to be fairly well known as a young guy, traveling a lot, speaking on a lot of seminars. Everything was good in that sense. 
And yet I always knew there's something missing here. And I discovered it. I got with a group and I discovered what I had been missing and what the churches I had been in had been missing. And so I made a major change in life and direction at that point uh, that didn't make a lot of people happy. But it made me happy. And uh, I'll show you as we go through. But this uh, lesson today, the subject of it's the main reason that I got in this movement of churches uh, when I did a uh, long time ago now, 1985. That's when I met Jim Fulcher. I went to a conference in 1981 in Gainesville, Florida. I came back uh, to my church in Tacoma, Washington at that time and preached a sermon called The Missing Ingredient. I was just so fired up about the missing ingredient that I discovered. I was shocked that uh, most of the folks in the church that heard that sermon weren't so excited as I. But I was excited about it because I had found something that I thought would make all of the difference. You see, in the churches I was in, I would say without any question, the majority of the work got done by a minority of the people. The majority of the money given was given by a small minority of the people, which meant that we had a lot of church members that really weren't heart and soul in there with Jesus. I think most of them viewed Christianity as a sort of fire insurance. All right, I want to get baptized now because when I die, I don't want to go to hell. And so it was mainly fire insurance for when you die rather than signing on for a life in the name of Jesus the Christ. And so uh, I found a missing ingredient I thought would help with that. You know, getting you saved is not God's main agenda in your life. There are a lot of people, churches full of people right now in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, and they think that the main thing is getting me saved. That's not the main thing. Here's the main thing. He says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. That's a funny-sounding verse there, isn't it? What, What was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, he said it is finished, right? And yet, there's a life that we're to live. There are pains that we are to bear that draw people just like Jesus' cross drew people to him. The way that we suffer matters, and that's what he's saying. He says, I become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. There's God's agenda to help you become mature in Christ. Uh, for you to know him, for him to be in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's really what this whole thing is about. 
is to make each of us more and more like Jesus every day, every month, every year of our lives. It's not just about getting saved. It's far, far beyond that. Uh, you start looking at these verses. What is more? I consider everything a loss uh, for or compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. There's a guy that's been a Christian a long time, done a lot of ministry. But he said, knowing Christ, that's it, that's why I'm here. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Colossians 2, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words, when you saw Jesus, you could see God, and until he became flesh, you really couldn't grasp God nearly like you could after you saw him in the form of a human. But he says then to us, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Just like people couldn't see God without seeing him in the flesh, people can't see Jesus now without seeing him in your flesh and my flesh. That's what the passage says. And so, so many passages here. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.1, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, so many verses here. But God is asking us to go a step beyond this, and that step is the essential step to maturity, and I think uh, to being saved as well. Many years ago, I wrote a big book, and by the way, I have some books out here, and uh, audio and video stuff. We had a teaching day back a month ago or so, and uh, I gave an estimate to my publisher about how many would attend based on what the leadership told me, and less than half that number attended, and so I've got a whole lot of materials left. There's some great deals out there. Tony, I've got a garage full of stuff I need to get cleaned out. My publisher's got a garage full of stuff at his house, and he wants to sell things, so he's selling a $12 Romans book for five. And I've got some of those out there. And then all the audio video stuff. Most of it's uh, MP3. You can pop it in your car and listen to it as you drive. I did that driving to and from Austin, listening to my own stuff to try to figure. <laughs> I, I was in Kiev some years back, and, and I did this thing. and I, I had a book idea, and I forgot what it was. And I had to listen to hours of me uh, being translated into Russian just to find out what was that book I wanted to write anyway. But I got it. My wife said, hey, have you heard it yet? Yeah, I, I did, finally. Uh, but at any rate, all that stuff's back there. There's some good deals. Uh, buy some books, okay? Uh, but I wrote a book many years ago. We have the condensed version now called The Power of Discipling. I've got plenty of those out there. They're normally 12 bucks for you today, 10. Uh, anyway, I wrote a long book called Discipling. We couldn't figure out what to call it. So Tom Jones, who was the editor, he said, well, why don't we just call it Discipling? I said, okay, I'm a simple guy, simple title, that's good for me. But then Tom came up with uh, a subtitle that to me is ingenious. It's God's plan to train and transform his people. 
And I thought, you know, that gets at it. Transform has to do with our characters becoming more and more like Jesus. Training has to do with our effectiveness in carrying on the mission that Jesus started to seek and save the lost. And so really, it pretty well encapsulates our life as a disciple to be trained and to be transformed in order to be like him and doing what he would do if he were here in person still, right? And so, key passages. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 1 John 2, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Romans 8, 28 and 29. We always get 28. We like that one. We don't even read to see what it means. But anyway... He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All right, what's his purpose? For because those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Working all things together for good is not to make you happy. It's to make you like Jesus. And that's the good. And that's what God works together for good. The good, the bad, the ups and downs, the pain, the rejoicing. It all goes together with God working it to make you more like Jesus. Now, uh-oh, bad sign. No signal. Thank you. All right. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Two parts, right? The first part's the simple part. And that is getting reborn spiritually, being made a disciple, being baptized into Christ. But then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, that's the bigger challenge, right? It's like having a baby. Now, I I never had one, but I've, I've been around those that did. There's a lot of pain, but it doesn't last long. But the the real pain starts then. Because you got to raise them. And there are a few challenges along the way. And that's the second part of the Great Commission, but that's the part, you see, where we become like Jesus, but you can't do it without being taught to obey everything he said. And my uh, considered judgment is you can't accomplish that without help. I mean, take, uh, take the first part of the Great Commission. Uh, make disciples, baptizing them. Well, you sit down and you teach someone. And so my question always is, Is that part of the Great Commission? Is that best done in an audience of this size? Or would it be better to sit down across the kitchen table with someone and do it privately? No-brainer, right? You can customize it. You can meet their needs. You can really learn about them. It's good that this has a purpose or I wouldn't be up here. But to really help someone make Jesus the Lord of their life, I'd rather be eyeball to eyeball with them and customize that. Now, if that's the easy part and that's the best way to do it, how do you think we're going to do this second part? Teaching them to obey everything. You really think we're going to do it here and Wednesday nights? 
No, you've got to have people in your life privately to help you become what God wants you to become. I mean, think of the Bible and how it's laid out. How much is in the Bible really about marriage and parenting? Not much. Uh, and you know, we, all, we know all the passages. There's some really good ones. I like them. They're God's Word. They're good. But there's not much about those subjects compared to all the things that we face in marriage and parenting. Well, what does God expect us to do? To be a family and help each other do it. Obviously, he meant discipling to be a part of that. For people to be in our lives helping us and coaching us and mentoring us and training us and whatever other words you want to use, there are a lot of them that work. But we've got to have people in our life to help us. And there's a lot of other subjects besides marriage and parenting that we need help with that the Bible doesn't say a lot about. There's some principles, but we've got to help each other. The concept of discipling, I've traveled pretty much over a lot of the world in the last 10 years, and uh, I've asked the question, well, what do you think about discipling, the concept of it in your church? Every church I've been to, no matter what their language, they said, oh, yes, we believe in that. But then when I say, well, how are you doing practicing it? The majority of your people on a consistent basis, how are you doing? And the answer has always been the same, not very well. Last October, I went to Kiev, came back through uh, Boston and New England, did a uh, weekend retreat thing for elders and elders in training, uh, Teresa and I did, and they asked me to speak about discipling, and I asked them, I mean, we're talking Boston, uh, the mother church of years ago, that one. And, and I asked this group of leaders, elders and elders in training, how are you doing at practicing this thing of discipling that you say you believe in? And there was not one church represented who said, we are really seriously, as a majority, doing it consistently. Not one. That's pretty amazing. Uh, I've taught at least 100 lessons on discipling. I was asked to teach on that at both the elders group and at a teaching day, and at the single thing yesterday, is to talk about discipling. Everyone knows that we need it. The question is, are we really doing it? And I'll close today with not short stories, but stories of three marriages. When I was in Dallas many years ago preaching for a mainline-type church, and I knew something was missing and people weren't talking. I remember one time a guy that I knew well. Uh, he was a deacon in that church and we had fished together. We had water skied together. He gave me a really nice tape, taper flex uh, solemn uh, ski that I used for a long time on Lake Lavon. It's got water in it. You could do it again now. I've kept up with that one. It's over flood stage by half a foot. Uh, but I, I used to fishing, water skiing, that one a lot. But this guy, a deacon in the church, somebody said, have you heard about so-and-so? I won't mention his name. You could know him. Uh, Did you hear about so-and-so? And I'm the minister. I said, what about him? He said, well, he and his wife are split up now. They're getting a divorce. 
I thought to myself, how is that possible? How is it possible for a deacon in this church to be already split up, getting a divorce, and no one knows anything about it? There's something wrong with that picture. You know, then I had a guy come over to me that he got a divorce too. His wife left him. He came over to my house in Richardson, and he sat on the sofa, and he just wept and wept. He didn't want his wife to leave. He didn't want to be divorced. It almost killed him. And he was sitting there spilling his guts about everything. And I thought, you know, something wrong with the church. When people only get open at a death or divorce. We do it at those two. We, we get open then. But you see that? There's an ingredient missing, missing with that. What really lit my flame on this discipling business is I made a trip down to a church that sort of ushered in a lot of it within the Churches of Christ, and that was down in Gainesville, Florida, at a church called Crossroads. I went down to that church for a week, and I met this professor who had taken a year's sabbatical. His daughter had come down to University of Florida as a freshman, and he was an elder in a mainline church. She came down to Florida and got baptized again. Lordship baptism. Real repentance. Made Jesus Lord. Well, that kind of concerned mom and dad, you know. It concerned them enough that dad, a college professor, took a one-year sabbatical and came down to Gainesville to just study out what is happening here. We went, he, he'd written a book. He said, I, I got it in manuscript form. He said, I'll give you a copy. And we went, this in the old days, it's 1981. You couldn't just zip it off the computer or something. I, I didn't know what a computer was. Uh, but uh, maybe did, but uh, I was a long way from having one. Anyway, we went and he copied this whole thing. I mean, it was a thick book. And I had all these pages, and I got on the plane and started flying back to Washington State and started reading that book. And I just kept reading, and I kept reading, and I kept reading. I read all the book, and I did not sleep for three days. Not a wink. No exaggeration. I was so disturbed by what I read, in a good way disturbed, but hurt by something. And one of the things in the book, I don't remember what he said. He was talking about the controversy of that particular church. I, I don't remember much of that. But he said something about discipling. He said, discipling is God's plan to help us deal with sin at the temptation level before it comes in and destroys our lives. And you see, in our family, uh, I didn't have a sibling until I was 10. After mom and dad saw me, they waited a while. Uh, <laughs> But I had a sister born when I was 10. But I had two first cousins that were like sisters to me. I was around them all the time, one slightly older, one slightly younger, and they were just exactly like my sisters. The older one, got they both got married in time, but the older one married this guy that was about as spiritual as that wood or plastic or whatever. But, you know, finally... Like me, he had a preacher guy that got in his life that made all the difference. 
I had one guy, a fisherman too, by the way, and he got me in a fishing boat and he, he, he changed my life. It's, that's, that's another story. But anyway, this guy got to my cousin's husband. And I mean, he got really spiritual. He changed amazingly. The whole family was so excited. Uh, I mean, it, it was just heavenly. Everybody was excited about God together. And then the two brother-in-laws went into business together, made a lot of money. West Monroe, Louisiana. Made a lot of money. And because they were making a lot of money, the wives didn't have a job outside the home. And the older one volunteered at a Christian school. It was a Christian school operated by the Duck Dynasty Church. You know that one? And White's Ferry Road? That's where a lot of my family was. Some still is. But uh, anyway, my cousin started volunteering at this Christian school. And she got attracted to the principal. They're both members of this church at the time. She got attracted to this principal, and they ended up having an affair. And their mates begged them, let's don't divorce. Let's get counseling. We have children. Let's don't. Uh, wreck our families. But they didn't listen. They divorced their mates. They married each other. And you have no idea the havoc that has come from that. The damage it did to my family. And it had just happened when I read the guy's book. And I thought to myself, three days and nights I thought to myself, what if she had had someone in her life that she was open with, discipling, and she could be honest about the attraction to this guy? Hey, we're humans. We have attraction. That's why discipling is so vital. Anyway. Tragic tale of woe. And I thought about all those people that I knew. Relatives, people in church. And I thought, oh God. What if they just had somebody that they were consistently open with and could deal with temptation before it destroyed? You see, that's what it could stop or prohibit. But on the other hand, on the other side of the cloud, there is the sunshine of what it can do. And I happen to be a recipient of that one. I'm a recipient of both of them. I've been married over 50 years now. I've never been unfaithful to my wife. And a big part of that is discipling. But the flip side of it is not only does it keep you out of sin, but it just really helps you grow and change. We moved to Boston after 23 years of marriage, and it was a rough transition. Sunny California to a blizzard in New England. I mean, uh, it, it did, I don't transition well anyway. This one hasn't been as hard as some, but honestly, I just don't leave 
close friends easily, and I don't know what else goes on with me. I'm, I'm weird anyway, but I don't transition well. I definitely transition badly going to Boston. And so they said, well, we're going to have Wyndham and Jeannie Shaw disciple you guys. Okay, fine. I believe in discipling. I had never done much of it, but amen, I'm good. Let's go. So we went over to Wyndham and Jeannie's house. After having moved, and I had been an idiot uh, for a couple of weeks before we got with them in this transition, we weren't doing well. So we went over to their house. Wyndham was intimidated because already for the last several years, I'd been speaking on all kinds of seminars and conferences and whatever else, and he saw me as this dude up on stage with a big mouth and preaching and big audiences and all of that. He was intimidated. I don't know why people get that way. We're, we're sinners like everybody else. We're just trying to make it. And we're preaching to ourselves when we're preaching to you. Because we're just one of you. Anyway, went over to Wyndham's house. First time. Sent his kids off to school. They're young then. It's 1988. January. And uh, Wyndham said, oh, how you guys doing? You know, small talk. Break the ice. I said, you really want to know? <laughs> when his eyes got kind of big, he, he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, here's the truth. I would like to choke this little woman right now. <laughs> and sad to say, I was dead serious. I was upset with her, I was upset with me, I was upset with God, I was upset at the world, the whole world stunk. Like that grandfather in the recliner taking a nap and his grandson came in, rubbed Limburger cheese in his mustache. And he woke up, good grief, he said, this room stinks. And he got up and walked all through the house, he said, the house stinks, the whole house stinks. He went outside, walked around the house. He said, well, that's it. The whole world sinks. <laughs> and it's his own upper lip. And that was me. Anyway, the look on Wyndham's face, I would give right now $1,000 for a picture of that look. I've never seen that combination of emotions. It was a combination of shock and relief. Because he thought to himself, I know what to do with this dude. <laughs> and you know, Wyndham and Cheney, they got with us so many times for so long. I don't know, a couple of months. We'd been married 23 years, guys. They got together with us time after time. They dragged everything out. They went back to our dating years, everything that... The other felt about the other, and it just, it took a while. Peeled off the layers, got down to the real heart, the real issues. I'll tell you one thing. It changed our marriage radically. It's never been the same again. I love my wife. I love being married. Uh, it, it, it's amazing what God has been able to do in our lives. You see, that's what happens. 
We just let it all hang out. So this is the real stuff here. You know, I wasn't trying to impress anybody, just saying we're hurting, we're a mess, and we need help. And it changed our life and our marriage. We redid our vows at uh, the 25 year, two years later. Uh, we've done marriage seminars all over the world. God has blessed us in so many ways. Uh, but it was because of discipling, guys. I was a preacher before that. I'd read all the books before that. I, I told other people how to do it before that. I just couldn't get it fixed in my own life with just me and her. I had to have help. And I don't think I'm that abnormal. I know I am a little, but have you looked in the mirror? We all got our stuff, guys, but I'm serious about this. We got to have health. And I've asked enough questions in Dallas to know that this church is just like every other one that I've been to in the last 10 years. We believe in this concept of discipling. We may be a little wiggly about the term and maybe we want to call it mentoring. I don't care what you call it. Just do it. Uh, we just got to have people in our life because I don't want to see anybody go through the pain that I've watched many, many individuals and couples and families go through because they don't get help from other people. So there's a lot more I could say about it. I've preached at least 100 sermons on the subject, maybe, maybe more than that. But I just appeal to you. I feel a lot today, as I told you. Uh, it's tough to lose friends. And all these guys that are dying, they're all younger than me. Uh, but God's calling them on. And he's going to call me home and he's going to call you home. And it won't take long. This stuff goes by fast. You teens over here, you think, man, it's going to be forever till I'm an old geezer like him. <laughs> uh-uh. It ain't either. It's going to happen relatively quickly. And so every day that you live and every decision you make is going to make up who you are. And you need to be serious about it now. Because like the Arsalana said, what you're saved from, not just past sins, but the life that God has saved you from. The help I got in my marriage at the 23-year mark, we've enjoyed now 27 years since then of a lot different marriage that we had going in. Wherever we are, we are. Let's get help and get where we need to be. Amen.